Hi, and welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Sobolewski, and I'm going to talk today about the initial management of elevated intracranial pressure, not the ongoing management. This episode focuses on what you do if you see a kid with elevated ICP in the ED or in the hospital, perhaps, and what do you need to do right away. First of all, you've got to recognize that it's going on. And, and this could be trauma. This could be a kid with a brain tumor. This could be a kid with a shunt malfunction. But some of the signs and symptoms you'll see across the board. These include severe headache and vomiting, especially vomiting that doesn't remit with antiemetics and isolated vomiting that's getting worse. A patient in a coma, it's obviously bad. Patient that has hypertension with bradycardia, Bradycardia, and I'll reiterate on this again, is always an ominous sign if you don't expect to see it based on the patient's level of illness. A patient with papilledema, patient with one of the classic herniation syndromes, which I won't go over in detail here, uh, but you can certainly look up at your leisure, and then abrupt onset of weakness or hemiplegia. Now, elevated ICP is generally a measurement greater than 20 millimeters of mercury. Now, most patients out in the world are not walking around with an ICP spike sticking out of their head. So you actually don't know the measurement. So ultimately, it's on you to recognize signs, symptoms correlating with the history that should make you worry that a patient has elevated intracranial pressure. All right, let's get on to management. And as always, it starts with the ABCs. Securing a definitive airway can prevent hypoxia, hypercarbia, and pulmonary aspiration. Reasons to intubate the patient include refractory hypoxia, hypoventilation, a GCS of less than 8, or GCS of 12 that is rapidly declining, loss of airway protective reflexes like the gag, and an acute herniation syndrome requiring controlled hyperventilation. Intubation should always occur with inline immobilization of the C-spine. Now, RSI is the preferred method. You should not do a delayed sequence intubation or an awake intubation. That's going to raise intracranial pressure. Etomidate and rocuronium are two recommended and widely used agents for the induction of rapid sequence intubation. Ketamine's okay, too. Its risk of elevating ICP as weak evidence at best, unless you're a mouse. Now, some institutions will use lidocaine, 1 to 2 milligram per kilogram, three to five minutes before laryngoscopy. Others won't. Now, this may blunt further increases of ICP during laryngoscopy, but the evidence is inconsistent, so follow local practice patterns. You also want to consider atropine for patients under a year, getting a second dose of a paralytic, or those with profound bradycardia. Post-intubation, fentanyl is preferred for sedation analgesia, as morphine may be more likely to cause hypotension. You can also use midazolam and vecuronium, but make sure that you tell your neurosurgeon that you're giving vec or at least give them a chance to examine the patient before you paralyze them for over an hour. When you are ventilating the intubated patient, you want to avoid high positive pressure ventilation as this could impair thoracic venous return and worsen cerebral perfusion pressure. In terms of breathing, hyperventilation, you know, driving the 
PaCO2 less than 35 millimeters of mercury decreases cerebral blood flow and may cause cerebral ischemia. That's bad. So low carbon dioxide in the brain causes vasoconstriction. So ultimately, you want the CO2 to be between 35 and 40 unless there's signs of acute or impending herniation. So the answer is not always hyperventilate. You can make things worse. You want to monitor with continuous pulse ox, end tidal CO2, augment with blood gases, and let's be honest, venous is fine. You don't need an arterial gas. So temporary therapeutic hyperventilation is a little bit different than aggressive hyperventilation. So temporary therapeutic hyperventilation, maintaining the CO2 30 to 35 for up to a couple of hours, this can be started, but really only if a neurosurgeon thinks that it's gonna be valuable and patients have impending signs of herniation and they're gonna to go to the OR. Now aggressive hyperventilation, this is getting the PaCO2 less than 30, Really, this is only useful in acute herniation if the patient is going to die in front of you. Aggressive hyperventilation may prevent herniation by relieving the pressure differential in the different compartments inside the head, but there's a really high risk of cerebral ischemia because you lower cerebral blood flow. So really, if the patient's gonna die, you can justify it, but hopefully you have a neurosurgeon coming to help you ASAP. In terms of circulation, two large bore IVs. I can't reiterate that enough. IVs are great. They're fine. You don't need a central line in the initial management, but definitely get more than one. The key take-home point is that you want to maintain normovolemia. Patients with elevated intracranial pressure generally didn't have gastroenteritis before smacking their head or doing whatever caused them to get high ICP in the first place. And really, they're not losing 25% of their circulating blood volume acutely inside their head. And acutely losing 25% of your circulating blood volume, as you know, is enough to make you acutely hypotensive. Now, if you suspect an isolated head injury, know that only infants under a year of age can lose enough blood inside their cranial vault to make them hypotensive alone. Patients with multiple trauma, different story, because they could have a fractured pelvis and a badly injured head and become hypotensive because they're bleeding in their pelvis, but also have uh, detriments to their circulation because of their brain injury. So low MAP equals low cerebral perfusion pressure. Remember that. Don't let the patient become hypotensive. Resuscitate them with crystalloid, normal saline, or lactated ringers. Uh, blood if they have other injuries, or hypertonic saline, and I'll get into more on that in a little bit of detail later. Patients with distributive or spinal shock, you know, have a central nervous system or a spinal cord injury. So you want to aim for normal MAP for age. That's why it's a good idea to have a table of mean arterial pressures per age uh, in your resuscitation area. You want to use fluids and a presser with alpha effects, and norepi is probably a better choice over epi, but then again, you're going to need a central line eventually for that one. Bradycardia with a cervical uh, spinal cord injury uh, requires atropine, pacing, and this is generally best done in an intensive care unit setting. Remember again, and I mentioned this before, that unexplained bradycardia, especially given the acuity of illness and you think the kid's going to be in compensated shock with tachycardia, is an ominous sign for an intracranial process. All right, let's move on to temperature control. Patients that have a fever, that are too cold or too hot, bad things can happen. So for those patients with a fever, you treat with antipyretics and a cooling blanket. Shivering increases ICP, so maintain normothermia. 
Hyperthermia increases cerebral blood flow. Now at this point, most centers don't employ early hypothermia in pediatric patients with TBI or elevated intracranial pressure. Now, there's two meta-analyses, both came out in the last two years. Uh, one was from Crompton from Critical Care Medicine, and including eight studies in children, and there were actually 41 in adults in this study as well. There was a 66% increase in mortality. The risk ratio was 1.66, and a marginal deterioration of neurologic outcome, the risk ratio of 0.9, in the patients that were cooled versus not. A second more recent meta-analysis further put the big freeze on therapeutic hypothermia in kids. This was from Tasker in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine. This included seven RCTs only in children, a total of 472 patients. There was no difference in mortality in hypothermia versus normothermia. There was a trend, but not a statistically significant result, to more death in children who received hypothermia versus those that didn't. And it was not impacted by duration of hypothermia, you know, one day, two days, three days. They couldn't reject a potential benefit, but the evidence did not point towards a positive trend for hypothermia. So really, only cool a patient if your hospital is doing that as an established protocol and likely if a multi-center trial is ongoing. Otherwise, the literature does not suggest a benefit in children. Results in adults are different, but we're talking about kids because this is a pediatric emergency medicine podcast. Other interventions. You want the head of bed at 15 to 30 degrees. And don't just eyeball it because actually greater than 40 degrees can decrease cerebral perfusion pressure. Getting the head of the bed elevated can facilitate a beneficial amount of drainage of venous blood from the head. Keep the head in midline position. You know, this can be done with blocks on the side of the head or a collar that isn't too tight. And this avoids obstructing venous drainage from the head back into the thorax. You'll want to use prophylactic anticonvulsants. This shouldn't be the first medicine you give, but get it in early and you can run it in over a pump as other therapies are going in. Seizures increase ICP, obviously. Uh, patients that are especially at higher risk for seizures include those with a, a brain tumor or known mass, someone with a depressed skull fracture, a severe TBI, uh, levetiracetam, phosphenitoin, phenobarbital are agents that you can use. There's not one that's felt to be superior. I will generally use Keppra, but phosphenitoin uh, is commonly used as well. Breakthrough seizures are different as opposed to prophylaxis. And again, Benzodiazepines are the best first choice. Pain control is important. Fentanyl is a great choice. As I mentioned earlier, morphine may cause more hypotension. And then there's hyperosmolar therapy. You've got hypertonic saline, which comes in various concentrations, including the most widely used 3%, and mannitol. Perhaps hypertonic saline is better. I admit that the evidence is limited. They both work. I do have a recent post on PEMblog, why we do what we do on hypertonic saline that you can read more on. In general, you want to use a little bit more caution for these agents in patients with a vasogenic cerebral edema. Now, these are patients with tumors, uh, intracranial hematomas, infarcts, cerebral abscesses, meningitis or encephalitis. A single dose isn't going to cause a problem, but prolonged and repeated doses of hypertonic saline may have at least the risk of limited effect and may worsen edema as the blood-brain barrier eventually fails. So first, let's talk about hypertonic saline. 
Now, technically, hypertonic saline is any sodium chloride solution with a greater concentration than normal saline, which is 0.9%, and that has 154 milliequivalents per liter of sodium chloride. Available concentrations out there include 3%, 5%, and 23.4%, which is pretty darn salty. So the blood-brain barrier is generally really impermeable to sodium. So giving saline with a sodium concentration far in excess of the plasma sodium will exert an osmotic effect that will help shift fluid out of the cranial vault. That overcomes the baseline lack of permeability. This can lower intracranial pressure. So aside from the osmotic effect, uh, they theorize that there are other potential benefits, including inhibiting inflammation, stimulation of atrial natriuretic peptide secretion, and increased cardiac output, maybe by restoring resting membrane potentials. The effectiveness of hypertonic saline is greatest in the first hour, then wanes a bit as sodium rapidly equilibrates across the blood-brain barrier. Now, there's various strategies in dosing regimen. The effective dose for acute usage, which is how you're going to use it in the emergency department, and it's the reason why you're listening to this podcast, is generally between 6.5 and 10 mLs per kilo. Dose I've used is 8 mLs per kilo. In general, you can expect 3% saline to increase serum sodium by 1 milliequivalent per liter for each mL per kilo you give. So experts recommend aiming for a serum sodium of 155 you kind of hit a ceiling in decreasing ICP once the serum sodium gets to greater than 160. In ICUs, they'll do continuous infusions at 0.5 to 1.5 mLs per kilo per hour. This is in conjunction with ICP monitoring, and you want to get the ICP less than 20. 3% can be given through a peripheral IV. The higher, saltier concentrations may be more caustic and are better administered through a central line. All right, let's move on to mannitol. Now, it works by decreasing blood viscosity, which leads to reflexive vasoconstriction. This diuretic has an effect that lasts for about 75 minutes. You get an osmotic gradient that draws fluid away from the brain into the vessels. There are side effects, obviously. They include hypovolemia. It is a brisk diuretic. Electrolyte problems and even renal failure. Now, there are animal models on cats, which you generally don't treat in the pediatric ED, show repeated doses aggravating cerebral edema. But, you know, maybe mannitol crosses the blood-brain barrier and causes injury. We don't know in kids. So if you give mannitol, just give a single dose. The current best evidence supports the use of hypertonic saline over mannitol as the first osmotic agent. Per the 2012 guideline for the acute medical management of severe TBI in infants, children, and adolescents, the first author is Kochanik, hypertonic saline got a level 2 recommendation as the first-line osmotic agent. This recommendation was based on the following. It better preserves intravascular status. It can be administered in a hemodynamically unstable patient. It restores normal cellular resting membrane potential and cell volume. It stimulates release of atrial natriuretic peptide. It inhibits inflammation, and it enhances cardiac output. So again, go with hypertonic saline instead of mannitol if you need an osmotic agent for elevated ICP. The dose I've used is 8 mLs per kilo. Patients refractory to the things I've just mentioned may need CSF drainage. Now, this happens sometimes at the bedside, preferably in the OR, but not on a ferry boat or in an airplane unless you are on a popular TV drama. 
This is a bedside external ventricular drain. You can put a patient into a pentobarbital coma. These patients need continuous EEG monitoring and ICP monitoring. Then there's always surgical decompression, but this is why you've called your neurosurgeon early on and got that non-contrast head CT. All right, so in summary, elevated intracranial pressure puts patients' lives at risk. Management should be early and aggressive, and it starts with prompt recognition. Make sure you pay attention to your ABCs. Intubate the declining patient, especially those with a GCS of less than 8. Take care of things like oxygen, carbon dioxide, glucose, and temperature. Think about getting osmotic agents on board as soon as possible. Right now, hypertonic saline has better evidence than mannitol. Thank you for listening to PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at PEMTweets or check out my Facebook page. I'd love to continue the conversation online. Check out the other episodes via iTunes or your favorite podcast service and leave a review. The feedback is very helpful. Again, I'm your host, Brad Sobolewski. See you next time.